You know, our culture and our society is a culture and a society that has a mistrust, a disdain, often for authority. We mistrust, we, we, we don't like authority, we don't like those who are in authority, there's a mistrust of it, and sometimes rightfully so, because there are people who've been in authority who've misused it, and who've abused their authority, right? That happens. Um, but our culture, especially in this age, has a disdain for authority. And I believe that leads into that there's a disdain, a disdain for God's authority, his word, his created order. But the thing is, God, everything God has created has authority and structure within it. I was talking to Dr. Tim Jordan this week, friend of um, mine, and he's been here once, I believe once before, and he will be coming March 12th to the men's event. Uh, Tim Jordan will be here to speak. Him and I are going to kind of do this thing together on March 12th for the men. So just welcome you guys back for that. But I was talking to Tim this week, and he said, Steve, we have to remember that every institution that God has created, there's authority in it. It's because God, within the Trinity, God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit, there's submission and authority there. The Son is submitted to the Father. The Holy Spirit is submitted both to the Father and to the Son. And then God has created the family and the church, other institutions that are to mirror image reflect who he is. And so, of course, there's order in that. And so last week we saw in Titus that God has ordained that there would be pastors or elders who would shepherd the church, who would lead the church, who would provide oversight and care and correction for the church, and that there must be that leadership and that order. Now, Paul, we saw last week in Titus chapter five, uh, verse 5, he said that the reason he sent Titus to Crete was to put what remained in order and to appoint elders in every town. Apparently, the church was in a bit of disarray and out of order. And so he's like, I, I'm reminding you this why I sent you there, to put what remained in order and to appoint elders in every town. So like that is something that had to happen then. That is something that has to happen today in the church today as well. Now, there were troublemakers in the church. The title of this morning's message is like, it was started dealing with troublemakers. Now, this could feel like this is a corrective message. It's not. This is not a corrective message. I'm not trying to address an issue at Redeemer. We're just doing an expository series, and here we are this morning. That's the beauty of doing expository preaching. Like, you get to passages like this where you're just like, well, I wouldn't choose this one on a Sunday morning, but we need to deal with it. And we're going to see today that Paul has some really harsh and direct words to say about some people. There were troublemakers in the church. They were causing division, dissensions. They were upsetting families. They were teaching as commandments, commandments of man. Like we've all seen that, heard that, right? Like seen part of denominations or movements where they begin to add to the word of God. That's what was going on here. They were teaching as commandments of man. They, now, there was really, these troublemakers were showing up kind of in two different extremes in the church in Crete. There were those who, what we would call the licentious, they were those who presumed upon the grace of God and said, well, God's grace forgives us so we can live wherever we want. And so they were, they were living uh, 
like licentious lives. But then there was also the legalists who were adding to the gospel. Well, we're saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ, but then you have to do these things. Well, if we're saved, faith that saves us is faith that changes us. But nothing we do keeps us or earns God's favor. Like it, it doesn't, like we are saved through the finished work of Jesus Christ and that alone. And so there was these two groups that were causing trouble in the church. And you've heard me say that the enemy often just wants to push you in one extreme or the other. And I think sometimes, and I'm realizing that wrongly, that we think that like the licentious people over here are, that's one extreme, and then the legalists are another extreme. But what we'll see this morning is they're both just operating in their flesh, and it's just the flip side of the same coin, the flesh. Your flesh drives you one or towards one or the other. Like I said, one group claims the gospel plus Jesus. And the other group thinks that grace gives them the freedom to do anything they want. And so there was, in a sense, false teachers in the church, troublemakers. Now, the church will always have them. They will always be in the church. They will always be in every body of believers. There will be these people who cause trouble. That's why Paul says that they should appoint elders in every town. Why? He tells them, this is what elders are supposed to do, to protect Pastors are supposed to protect the sheep from these troublemakers. So if you would read with me this morning, Titus 1, I'm actually going to start in verse 9. We were in that verse last week, but it kind of sets the ground for where we're going today. And now I'm going to read all the way to verse 1 of chapter 2. Verse 9, speaking of elders, he must hold fast or hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. So again, this is what an elder is supposed to do, a pastor is supposed to do. He's supposed to instruct in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. Verse 10, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans a prophet of their own said, Christians are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works, they are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. But as for you, teach what accords to sound doctrine. Now, Paul used some words there that weren't very kind. Can we all agree that? Detestable, unfit, insubordinate, liars, evil beasts, and gluttons. Now, Paul didn't say they were liars, evil beasts, and gluttons, lazy gluttons. But he said one of their own said that. And then Paul says at the end of it, but it's true. So he's like, he said it, I affirm it. Like these are harsh things. This is God's word to us this morning. You're like, well, how do, how do we apply this to our lives? Now, I'm going to admit, acknowledge that this morning is going to feel a little bit different. We're going to take a different route this morning uh, with our service than we normally would. And we will see that at the end. And, but it brings us to point number one. We need to see the characteristics of troublemakers. 
Point number one, characteristics of troublemakers. All right, here we go. That's why I left you in Crete to appoint our orders in every town and put what remained in order. And then he goes in verse 10, for there are many, okay, not just a few of them. There was a lot of them apparently in Crete. Again, this is not a corrective message. I want you to understand that. This is just preaching through God's word. For there are many who are insubordinate. The characteristics, they're rebellious. Empty talkers, deceivers. They're liars, evil beasts, gluttons. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. This is their characteristic. Now you're like, well, that doesn't seem fair. Well, insubordinate, what does it mean? Just defiant, rebellious. First um, Samuel 15, 23 says that rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. In the King James, it would say, for rebellion is as the sin of divination. When we're rebellious, we are aligning ourselves with the demonic. For where there is this, or this rebellion, it causes an allegiance with the demonic forces. They don't submit to God's word. They're empty talkers. Now, have you ever heard people who talk a lot, but they're not really saying anything? Like, they talk a lot, but you're like, I don't understand what they're saying. Like, like and you ever meet the person where like, Every now and then there's this nugget, like they just say a lot, but every now and then there's this little nugget comes out of them. And you'd be like, if they would just cut it down to that, they'd be brilliant. But they open their mouth and then you're like, come on. We're going to get to that when we get in Proverbs after Easter. But, but they're empty talkers. Their speech contain, contains nothing, nothing of value. They were good at talking, but not doing. There will always be those kind of people in the church. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They profess to know God. There are lots of people who profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. Jesus said, many will say to me on that day. How many? Many. Many will say to me on that day, Matthew 7. They will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these things in your name? And he will say, depart from me. I, what, never knew you, knew you. See, this is why a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ is so important. We have to know him and be known by him. Now, he knows who everyone is, but he, he didn't know them in a personal saving way. He said these people profess to know God, but they deny him by the way they live their lives. They're deceivers. People who mislead others. Verse 11, they do it for shameful gain. Verse 12, it says that they're liars. I find this interesting. It says they're always liars. They're not just beasts, they're evil beasts. They're not just gluttons, they're lazy gluttons. And then he says, this testimony is true. He's like, this is their characteristics. Now, I don't know if you guys have been paying attention at all, a little bit of what's going on. There, there's... You know, in some college campuses, it appears that God is moving in a way where there's revival breaking out. And I'm telling you what our nation needs more than anything is a revival within the church. But revival in a land will never happen until we draw a circle around ourselves and deal with the sin within that circle. 
We have to draw a circle around. Like, it's so easy to look at somebody across the aisle, someone down the street, someone across the road, and say, they, they need to repent. They, no, draw a circle around yourself. Scripture says in the Old Testament that if my people will humble themselves and pray, then I will heal their land. And some people say, well, that's an Old Testament promise to the people of Israel that doesn't apply to us today. True. But are you telling me that if God's people in any land will, will humble themselves and pray, humble themselves, what is that? The humbling that we're going to get to in a moment is repenting our own sin, not everyone else's. Are you telling me that if God's people in any community and in any nation will humble themselves and pray that God won't send revival and healing to that land? Of course he will. Verse 12, they speak falsehood, deception. They're lazy gluttons. One of the problems in the church in America today, and I'm not talking down to anyone. I'm talking to myself as much. We are spiritually lazy. We're spiritually lazy. We're apathetic spiritually. We just, we expect Seek me with all of your heart, and I will be found by you. How much? All of you. All. All. Full on. Going after the Lord, and then I will be found by you. How many of us want to be half-heartedly pursued by the person we love? Seek me with all of your heart. All. All in for the glory of God and the joy of his people. But so many of us are spiritually lazy. He says they're lazy gluttons. It's a characteristic of them. They, they, were, they were gluttons. Philippians 3, verse 19 says their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. Now, if someone's God is their belly, unfortunately, it's easy to see. But it's not just talking about that. It's talking about your appetites. And if we think about this, how often do... Do, do our appetites crave things and consume us that are just temporal, have no eternal value? And we crave and they control us and they make us unhealthy people and lead us into sin. Paul sums it up. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their words, their character, their works. No fruit. No fruit. This is their characteristics. They're detestable. Deserving of intense dislike. Disgusting. Disobedient. Unfit for any good work. This unfit for any good work. It's the same root word that we find in 1 Corinthians 9.27. But I discipline my body and keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. The unfit for any dis. Good work that would be, they're disqualified from. It's the idea of being a castaway. They're not qualified. Paul didn't mince words. And sometimes words like this need to be spoken in the church. That's why the church needs pastors and elders. Because the enemy is prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. As I said last week, I believe it was Calvin who said, pastors need two voices. One to gather sheep. 
and one to chase away wolves and thieves. And sometimes the same voice has to come from the same pulpit. Now again, I want to assure you, this is not a correcting message. We're just in Titus. That's where I happen to find ourselves today. But you know, this week I was reminded about the need to drive things away with your voice. We live next to the mountains. And um, we have coyotes around our house a lot. So we used to have a lot of like what I would call feral cats. <laughs> we don't have them anymore. Coyotes are in town. And um, they wake us up at night. And uh, Thursday evening, I was on the phone with my oldest son. And uh, we were talking. And I was upstairs in my bedroom. And like a pack of them outside of our house just like cut loose. Like just started yapping and barking. And like they were close. Like, they, I'm sure they were in my yard. Like, if not, they were like right in the fence row behind my house. And so I opened the window. I put my phone on speaker and put it up so my son could hear him. And he's like, what in the world? And so how many of you ever, if a stray dog comes into your yard, you yell at him, get out of here. Some of you, some of you are like, you, I would never, I would never tell a dog to go. Like, if it's not my dog, get out of here. Right? Can I get an amen? Like, be gone. Be gone. It's not my dog. And <laughs> go home. Yes. Go home, dog. And so I, I thought, I'm going to see if I can chase. Like, so I yelled at them, get out of here. I don't know if they left, but they got quiet anyhow. But you know, sometimes as pastors and as elders, they have to use that voice and that tone. And Paul's certainly using it today. Number two, so we saw the characteristics of troublemakers. Now we see, need to see the dangers of them. Verse 11, the dangers of them. He goes on, he says, um, they must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not teach. They're, they're teaching for, like, they must be silenced because they're causing trouble. They're causing trouble. They're upsetting whole families. This happens. When false teachers come in, they, they bring division. Uh, they're divisive. Uh, verse uh, goes on. He said, they're evil beasts. They're liars. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Verse 14, devote... He said, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from truth. So here's the dangers. They were teaching commands of man, not God's word. They were all of these things. And, and again, there was two things going on here. Most commentators believe there was two groups of false teachers that who were causing trouble in the church. There were those who presumed upon the grace of God. They were licentious. They were, um, they were kind of like... Like libertines, they would, some would say. They, they thought that because they were saved by grace, they could live wherever they wanted. And it didn't matter that their, their behavior didn't need to line up with their beliefs. But Paul is clearly telling us in Titus that your beliefs must match, or your behavior must match your beliefs, right? But then there was also this other group who was teaching extra biblical commands. They were teaching as commandments of man as if they needed to follow their personal convictions or their commands to be saved. Now, he, he calls them especially those of the circumcision party. They were those who were probably Jew, people who were Jews who had become Christians, but thought that they must still adhere to the Old Testament Jewish law. Circumcision, dietary laws, all of these things. And, and it was causing division and trouble in the church. This is usually pretty easy to spot, but so easy to miss. Now, as I said before, 
whether you're living licentiously or legalistically. It's really that it's just the flip side of the same coin. It's just the flesh. Your flesh. Your flesh wants to live however you want and presume upon the grace of God, or your flesh wants to earn your own righteousness. And we often use it to look down and to criticize other people. Romans 6. Romans 6. Paul writing to the church in Rome. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Paul's saying, like, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. So for those who were in the church, they're causing trouble, who said, well, because we're saved by grace, we can just sin because grace will abound. Paul's like, no. No, you can't do that. Because faith that saves you is faith that changes you. But then we go to Galatians. Galatians 5, verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, Sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, when we hear a list like that, I would submit to you, those of us who've been raised in the church a long time, there's certain things that really jump out at us. Sexual immorality, adultery, orgies, drunkenness. And we begin to feel good about ourselves because I'm not a drunk. I'm not an adulterer. But do you see what he put in there with it? Right in the same list. Envy. Jealousy. Rivalries. And if you allow the word of God to cut to the heart, you all of a sudden realize how guilty you are. Because I envy. Jealousy's in my heart. Sometimes I have dissension. And we can begin to feel good about ourselves and look down on others. And if we allow the word of God to have it say, we realize that we're all at the same place. But within the church, we begin to look down on those who struggle with alcohol or have committed sexual sin. And we don't understand that those of us who are jealous and envious are committing egregious sin. And in the end, do you see? It's just the flesh. We call them sins of the flesh and sins of the spirit, which I believe the Bible speaks of that. Sins of the flesh, but sins of the spirit, my pride, my self-righteousness, my... But you see, it's just a flip side of the same coin. And so easy it is for us to point the finger at people who deal with other types of sins. But if you really allow the word of God to weigh in and evaluate your life, 
I believe that we will find ourselves all in desperate need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And all of a sudden, we realize that I better draw a circle around myself. Because, oh yeah, I was looking down on somebody because I've not been an adulterer, but envy. I'm just going to be honest, I envy people. I'll be honest, I envy people who can just go away on the weekend. Just go away on the weekend. Like, that'd be amazing. <laughs> sometimes I, if I can just be really honest, sometimes I envy guys who can just get in their truck tomorrow morning and go to work. See, some of you think, well, I just, I envy Steve because, yeah, well, I envy you. You see how desperate need we are of the gospel? We, I, see, what happens is we th- there's respectable sins and unrespectable sins, but before the cross, they all require the shed blood of Jesus Christ. We're all in desperate need, see? I'm no better than you. You're no better than me. We're all at the same place. These people are dangerous. And Paul's like, like the, the licentious and then the Judaizers, the circumcision party, those who teach as the commandments of man, they, they, they teach as if their commands, but that happens in the church today. How many of you were raised in a church where, or in a way, a family, a church where like there was all these extra biblical things applied to Sunday? Anybody else? Like basically you couldn't go eat out, you couldn't work, you couldn't go shopping, Essentially, you couldn't have fun on Sunday because that wouldn't be holy. Some of you are like, what? Like, maybe you're raised where you couldn't play cards or, you know, this week I read an article that said about, you know, five things that people often think are sins that the Bible doesn't call sin. And one of them was dancing. And, you know, I remember being raised thinking like, well, dancing must be this really terrible thing. And then it reminded me of that song, you know, you can dance if you want to. You can leave your friends behind because if they don't dance and if they won't dance, they're, come on, you know the rest. They're what? No friends of mine. Come on, how many of you know that song? Just be real honest. Yeah, some of you are like, I know it. Right. But see, all these things that the Bible doesn't talk about, and we create tattoos. People are like, well, in the Old Testament, oh, okay, listen, judicial, ceremonial, and moral law. Like, you need to understand. Like, and you can't just pull portions of the Old Testament out. Like, one of the things, it's, 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 I find it interesting. There's groups. Like, the Bible talks about modesty, clearly. But it doesn't define what it is. So I think, like, you know, so we have to be careful. And I think it's appropriate and right for, like, churches or places. That, like, if you work in a church to say, hey, here's our kind of dress code standard. We need every. It's okay, like, for families, for fathers to say this is what it's going to be in our house. But, but I, don't have this, I don't have a right to impose on you what my conviction is. And when churches and movements make these standards that the Bible doesn't set as an expectation... Well, that's exactly what Satan did to Eve in the garden. Remember when Satan goes to Eve in the garden, he says, did God really say? Did God really say? And Eve's like, yeah. He said, we can't eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden, or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, nor shall we touch it. But God didn't say that. He just said you couldn't eat it. But immediately what the enemy does, he tries to get us to add to God's word because then he thinks, because then we think we're more spiritual. 
And then we judge and criticize others who don't measure up to our personal convictions. And Paul's like, they're troublemakers. They're troublemakers. This creeps into the church under the guises of being super spiritual in its workspace and it leads to pride or in critical spirits. And people who succumb to this type of religion, it either leads to pride, look at me, they don't measure up, or defeat. I just can't, I just can't do it. I just, I just can't measure up. One or the other. And either way, the enemy gets what? Victory. Victory. The danger is we begin to trust our own works and our own righteousness. One of the other things that we see happening in the church today, there is those who, like, you know, we talk about workspace righteousness. We've all heard that, you know, like, like we're not saved by works. We're saved by grace through faith, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. There are those who for, forever have thought, you know, have added to the gospel by works, but there's also what we would call theological righteousness. Now, those who think that they're saved because their theology is so perfect, but yet they don't have love. And if they don't have love, you're what? A noisy, clanging gong and cymbal. Above all, put on love. Like if, you're if you have right theology, it will move you to love, not condescension, not critical spirit, not harshness, not judging others. So you need to understand the dangers of troublemakers. Number three, there must be a response to troublemakers. And this is what pastors, elders need to do sometimes. Verse 11, they must be silenced. They must be silenced. It almost has the idea of like their mouths must, it does. It has the idea of their mouths must, must be closed. It, it's, it's, one commentator said it's the idea that their mouths should be taped shut. They should be silenced. That's the response. They must be silenced. In verse 9 what, of last week that we saw and we read it earlier, he says that elders must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. Okay, rebuke. Then he goes on and he says they must be silenced. And in verse um, 13 he says, therefore rebuke them sharply. Here's the, here's the intent of the rebuke though, that they may be sound in the faith. Now this rebuke sharply means that it, it, it's, it's really harsh in the original language. It is to shame them publicly. Now, it's because they were rebellious, remember? They most likely had been addressed privately, and they wouldn't receive it. And they wouldn't change the way. So he's like, publicly rebuke them, sharply, harshly, so that they may be sound in the faith. Call them out. Now, culture, what, like we think in the church that should never happen. But as I said prior, sometimes pastors and elders need two voices. And sometimes that has to be done. But today, there's also a problem in the church where there are those that we would call self-proclaimed heresy hunters. There are false teachers. There's false teachers. But as R.C. Sproul, I believe, rightly said at one point, we all teach and believe some things falsely. None of us ever are 100% right. And Sproul said, I believe at best, the best of us are only 80% right. There's a difference between teaching something falsely and being a false teacher. And there are those out there who claim to be 
heresy hunters and like, calling out all sorts of people. On what authority do they have to do that? And so, and so like this, this thing that we must be careful, but it must always be done in love. And when we become critical and judgmental of others who maybe don't see things the way we do, it's very dangerous. But there is a response. There must be silenced. There must be called out. And then number four, we must defend gospel purity. Back to verse or chapter two. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. We must defend gospel purity. See, these troublemakers were distorting the gospel. There was those who said, yeah, the gospel, we're saved by grace and faith. Just believe, just believe, and, you, and you'll, you'll have eternal life. Well, that's true. But Jesus said, you must be what? Born again. Jesus said, if you love me, you obey me. So if you are saved, there must be a movement towards Christ-likeness. And so there's those who were just saying, just believe, and then assume, presuming upon the grace of God, and then just thought they could go live however they wanted, and they would still be covered. And I was like, no. But then there was others who said, yes, the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're saved by grace through faith. But then there's these things you have to do to keep yourself, to add to. Paul referred to them as the circumcision party, or the Judaizers. They were teaching it's commandments of man as if they were the words of God. But we need to understand Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2 really clearly. And I just want to read this. Ephesians 2, verse 1 through 9. And just let these words set on your heart. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air that is the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. Not a result of works so that no man may boast. We must defend gospel purity. If you are saved, you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's it. It's not your works. It's not your sexual purity. It's not your self-righteousness. It's not your works. Yes, we're called to holiness. Absolutely. You're not saved because you never envy. Because in those list of things that I read to you out of Galatians, if you didn't feel conviction by something in there, if you don't feel conviction somewhere in there, 
I just lovingly want to say that's concerning. Jesus said, repent and believe the gospel. Martin Luther, when he nailed his 95 Theses to the Wittenberg door, one of the first lines in it says, the whole of a Christian life is one of repentance. And I think sometimes Christians have this idea, well, I repented 20 years ago, I'm good to go. No. No, because our hearts, as Calvin said, are perpetual idol factories. Because we constantly are worshiping and serving other things other than the creator God. Because the sins of the flesh are evident. Envy. Jealousy. Rivalries. Dissensions. Right along with adultery, sexual immorality, and orgies. When I read that and allow the Spirit of God to convict me, all of a sudden, I don't feel very good about myself. And I see my desperate need of the gospel. And I'm reminded that I only stand before a holy God in the righteousness of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he became sin, Jesus, who knew no sin, so that I, so that we, so that you might become the righteousness of Christ. Because when I look at myself, I see envy. I see jealousy. I see dissension. I see bitterness. And all of a sudden, I realize that I'm no better than anyone else in desperate need of the gospel. Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may be clean also. Luke 18. Jesus teaching a parable. about those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Church, if we're going to defend the gospel, we can't treat people with contempt who struggle with different sins than we do. Two men went to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, for those of you who don't know, a Pharisee was a very religious person, looked apart, dressed apart, and a tax collector was despised. They were the outcasts of society. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Could you just be honest with your heart for a moment? 
How often do you think those thoughts? God, I thank you that I'm not like them. I haven't been divorced. I haven't committed adultery. But he said, if you envy and have jealousy in your heart, it's the same problem. See? That I'm not even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. It's like, look what I do, God, for my righteousness. He says, but the, first, or the, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus speaking to us. He said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Saying that the tax collector who just humbly hung his head and beat his chest and said, God, oh, be merciful to me, a sinner. He went out justified. Declared legally free from the penalty of his sin. But the other one didn't. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Repentance is humility. God, forgive me. God, forgive me. God, forgive me.